Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Grizz Weekly Grind, a proud affiliate of the Basketball Podcast Network. I'm Pete Pranica, the TV voice of the Memphis Grizzlies and your host for the podcast. This is episode number four, and it's being brought to you today by the Hoop City Basketball Club. Since 2005, their mission has been to assist young student-athletes in grades 1 through 12 in developing a strong work ethic with discipline, responsibility, and accountability. Hoop City has helped young men be great on the court and in the community, and their alumni include major college and NBA players. For more information on how to become part of this great sports and character-building club, log on to HoopCityBC.com. One of the coaches for Hoop City is Scott Adubato, and if the Adubato name rings a bell with you and you're an NBA fan, there's good reason, because his dad, Richie, a longtime coach in the NBA and now a broadcaster for the Orlando Magic, and Scott Adubato is not only a coach for Hoop City, BC, but he used to be a uh, an assistant coach in the NBA, particularly with the Memphis Grizzlies, and uh, he is part of that. So you know that you're going to be getting some high-level instruction if uh, your young person is part of Hoop City Basketball Club. Well, what do we have on deck for you today? Well, I hope that you enjoyed the conversation that we had with former Grizzlies President of Business Operations, Andy Dolich, because that was just part one. We've got part two coming up later on in the podcast as our uh, 901 Knowledge Series continues. And also have uh, some PD's points to share with you, but of course... We always start the program off with That Was the Week That Was. Only one game really to talk about, just the way that the games are spaced and uh, the podcasting production schedule works. So we go back to Monday. Grizzlies go to Cleveland to start a three-game road trip, and they beat the Cavaliers 101-91 for the second time this season. Grizzlies with 30-plus assists. They finished with 32 assists in this game. Only the victory at Charlotte. They had more. They had 34 in that game. Last year, the Grizzlies had a league-high 20 games with 30 or more assists, and they won 15 of those. And so when the Grizzlies put up 30 assists, pretty good opportunity for them to get a win. For the second time in as many meetings, no Colin Sexton for the Cleveland Cavaliers. Grizzlies took advantage of that. Uh, Cleveland signed Yogi Ferrell as a hardship exception to their roster, and he played really well, did come up with nine points off the bench. For both of these teams, benches were so-so. Grizzlies did get nine from Desmond Bain, eight each from Xavier Tillman, and DeAnthony Melton, who continues his strong play. But I know that it it became kind of a, a, uh, I don't want to say a joke, but it was something to laugh about last year when Dylan Brooks goes for 20, Grizzlies probably win. Well, so far this year, the Grizzlies are perfect when Dylan Brooks goes for 20 or more, he had 21 at Cleveland and the dagger three. Didn't shoot it particularly well, only 6 of 15 and 2 of 8 from 3, but he hit the big three down the stretch. Part of this, and we'll touch on this in PD's points, Grizzlies had a 16-point lead and lost it, but they were able to come back and win the game. Grizzlies will uh, go on, and they will be in Minnesota on a Wednesday night, so we'll talk about that in the next edition of the podcast. By the time you hear this, that game will have already been played. Then Friday night, uh, they will remain in Minneapolis and play Minnesota again at Target Center. Third and final meeting between the two teams has yet to be scheduled. Uh, right now, the NBA schedule, in case you weren't aware, is only being done uh, one half at a time. Uh, to allow opportunities for postponed games to be made up. And we're starting to see more and more postponed games, none affecting the Grizzlies so far. However, the Grizzlies are scheduled to take on the Phoenix Suns on Monday afternoon in the annual MLK Day celebration game. However, Phoenix, because of contact tracing issues, their 
Wednesday night game with Atlanta has been postponed. So we'll have to wait and see if the Grizzlies are going to be if the Grizzlies are going to be in some type of situation where one of their games might get postponed. They're supposed to play the Phoenix Suns on Monday afternoon in the annual Martin Luther King Jr. celebration game after a Saturday night game against the Philadelphia 76ers, and they've had some issues as well with COVID and contact tracing. So we will have to see if the Grizzlies will be able to maintain this schedule or if it's going to be have to be modified in uh, some way, shape, or form. All right, let's get right to Petey's points. And the first one I already alluded to, and, and number one, Grizzlies, please, uh, you've you've got you've got to do something about giving up big leads. Grizzlies had a 22-point lead against Brooklyn. Uh, they were able to uh, right the ship late in the game and win. Uh, and then against Cleveland, you had a 16-point lead on the road, and that all went away. And again, the Grizzlies were able to steady the ship in the fourth quarter. And uh, the Grizzlies, who notably had struggled in clutch situations, clutch situations being the final five minutes of a game when the margin is within five points, as defined by NBA.com, Grizzlies had really struggled in clutch situations this year, uh, but they were able to uh, take care of business in both of the last two. Look, I understand that there are going to be runs in the NBA. It's going to happen. The other team is a bunch of professionals. They're going to play well from from time to time, and, and you're going to... Uh, level off maybe in terms of your offensive or defensive production, but uh, giving up double-digit leads is not really a good way to fly. So hopefully the Grizzlies, and when they get healthier, and I I know that's always the caveat, they will be a little bit more stable and uh, there won't be such great fluctuations in the game score. Number two, I like what the Grizzlies are doing defensively. They have been much more active defensively. They have gone from being a middle-of-the-pack team in terms of deflections per game to the number two deflection team. In the NBA, they're among the league leaders in steals. They're being very disruptive, and cashing baskets off of turnovers has been one of their most efficient ways of scoring, along with second-chance scoring and scoring in the paint. So what you like from the Grizzlies, they're they're exhibiting that grittiness uh, on the defensive end by getting deflections, getting steals, and they are paying them off at the other end, and I think that's a great development for the Grizzlies because the first three, four games of the season, Grizzlies were not active defensively, and uh, just really struggled on the defensive end of the floor. Number three, really like the rookies. Desmond Bain, Xavier Tillman, they do not look like rookies when they are out there. And this is why Brevin and I prefer to draft players. If, If we were general managers, which we are not, nor do we play them on TV, but if we were general managers, we would prefer to draft guys that had been in a college program for more than a year. There are some one-on-ones that can walk into the NBA and are very, very good. You know, see, uh, well, some guys have even come into high school. I'm thinking of Kevin Garnett and Kobe Bryant. There, there are guys that can come in after one year of college, and they can be very, very good. But I think balance of probability, particularly when you're, you're picking late in the first round and into the second round, grab somebody who's been around a college program for two, three, four years, and I think that that is going to be a benefit to your basketball club. And both those guys have been very, very good. Um, they have shown some rookie signs uh, of just not understanding the NBA game, but they're starting to round into form. And Xavier Tillman has already said, boy, I, you know, I really now understand better than ever what I need to do for myself, for my body, to be in shape, what I need to do in order to play at this level. And I think that's a, that's a good sign. There's some recognition there, and he's doing what he needs to uh, do to be productive on the floor. As far as the James Harden situation, well, uh, Philadelphia, Brooklyn apparently trying to, to put together packages to get James Harden. And when you know that DeMarcus Cousins is not happy with you, you know that you got some serious issues. And apparently, from all that we are reading, 
James Harden just really is not getting along with his teammates. And in fact, uh, his teammates have, have pretty much kind of sick and tired of, of what he's doing. And what this says to me is that you can look at numbers all you want, and you can look at point production, and you can look at all-star uh, numbers, and you can look at triple-doubles and double-doubles and, and all those other things. At the end of the day, it's still a team game. And as good as Harden can be individually, and he is brilliant. He is one of the most gifted scorers of our age. There is absolutely no question about that. But what's a guy like in the locker room? How does he get along with his teammates? Uh, that, to me, is very, very important. And that's something that the Grizzlies have always stressed, is that they bring in high-quality people to be good teammates. And that's why you see this team, despite all the injuries, you know, they're they're hanging around 500 and they're battling hard every single game. Why? Because you have good quality guys there, guys of character, guys who are willing to put themselves on the line for their teammates. And you don't see that in every market, certainly don't see it in every team. Certainly you're not seeing it in Houston right now. Final PD's point for today's program, uh, COVID-19. It is an issue. It is a problem. Uh, the NBA was fantastic with what they were able to pull off in Orlando. Um, you know, they, they were able to pull off the schedule with, without any hitches, uh, and, and that was fantastic. Trying to have a bubble for all 30 teams for the course of a season simply is not practical. NBA worked very hard to develop some protocols. We're finding now that through contact tracing that teams are not able to feel, field the requisite eight players in order to, uh, to play a game. Yes, there are issues. Yes, the protocols have been tightened. Yes, does it seem strange that uh, you can't hug a uh, you know you can't hug an opponent after the game? You can only fist bump or bump elbows. Some of this stuff on the surface, people may think, well, it, it's kind of silly and it's kind of foolish. But what the group, what the NBA is trying to do, they're trying to minimize risk. There is no way, short of canceling the season and letting everybody sit home, there's no way that you are going to totally mitigate the risk of infection. It's just not going to happen. Um, you know, and George Hill came out of, of Oklahoma City. George Hill came out and said, well, you know, if it's really that bad, maybe we, we shouldn't play. It's a for perfectly valid and reasoned thought on his part. Having said that, do you really want to shut down the season? Um, I think what we found is when players after the season, when they went back to their home areas and maybe weren't as careful as they were in the bubble, the rate of infection is going to go up. So, yeah, you could you could shut down the season and say, look, we're just not going to do this until there's a vaccine widely available, which for the NBA, which has rightly claimed it would not jump the line. The vaccine might not be available till April or May. We're seeing that the rollout of the vaccine is incredibly slow as it is. So you're basically kissing the season goodbye. And what economically does what does that do economically, I should say, to the NBA? What does it do to players salaries? What it does, what does it do to the collective bargaining agreement? So what the NBA is trying to do, I mean, yes, they are trying to get through a season. That, it's their business. It's what they do. They put on basketball games. The other part of, of this is, and, and this is where I take some issue with George Hill, is the tightening of the protocols is not simply to get through the season. That is obviously a big part of it, but it's also player safety. I mean, the NBA does not want to unduly expose its players, its stars, its product to COVID-19. They're trying to mitigate the risk as much as possible. And yes, tightening the protocols, uh, like I said, some of them may seem a little odd, may seem a little silly, but believe me, I know people that are involved in this process, they take this very, very seriously. And hopefully, 
tightening the protocols is going to help, and we're going to not have as many postponements as we have had. But again, COVID is very, very real. Speaking from personal experience, I know people who have had it. I know people who have recovered from it. I know people who have died from it. I know one friend right now who is in intensive care unit with it, and his survival is is not assured. So this is very, very real, and anything that the NBA can do to mitigate the risk to its players, to its product, and, and to its business uh, is good business for the NBA. And hopefully this will all be over sooner rather than later. Uh, it's it's, it's going to be a year at least before we get a handle on this, unfortunately. Well, uh, that does it for Petey's points, and uh, let's uh, transition to some 901 knowledge. We had a really good chat with Andy Dolich, the former president of business operations for the Vancouver Grizzlies, then the Memphis Grizzlies, and among his many achievements was getting the Martin Luther King Jr. game scheduled in Memphis, getting it on the NBA calendar, and bringing it to the attention of the NBA that, hey, this would really, really be appropriate. So we'll wrap up today's show with uh, part two of our 901 Knowledge conversation. Well, another thing, too, that I want to touch on, Andy, and we're speaking with Andy Dolich, former president of business operations for the Memphis Grizzlies and now a consultant in the Bay Area in sports marketing and sports in general. Um, One of the things that Michael Heisley was very adamant about was that professional sports could be an engine for good and a generator of philanthropy in the local community. And I know a lot of it was focused on St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, but I'd like for you to recount for the listeners, you know, what it was about Mike Heisley and why he felt that that was such, had to be such a big part of the Grizzlies DNA. First and foremost, Mike is a self-made man. Um, He didn't just wake up one day and realize that his parents had left him $6.8 billion. Um, So he he put um, so much of his life and his family into making uh, them, you know, a, a incredibly organized and strong economic force. Um, and when he looked at the NBA and looked at what he wanted, he was a basketball fan first and foremost. I had grown up in Virginia, Georgetown, all of that. Um, as he looked uh, at other basketball teams, the Celtics, I think Cleveland, he looked at purchase, but Vancouver made sense. And he knew that he was going to be an absentee owner. That's really key. So looking at the Hides and Andy and Staley Cates and Gail Rose and Charles and all the other people, Steve Earhart and on and on and on said, look, these people know the community better than I. Um, And it was important for him to reach out to that community um, to make sure Mike loved food, as you know, so, Uh, You know, it wasn't just being near the Mississippi River. It was making sure that we had great food. And I remember many meetings with Pat Neely um, in terms of Mike sampling Neely's uh, great barbecue. Uh, And and that really led to it. And Tom Penn, who was working for the team, Tom spent a lot of his time working with the people at St. Jude. I got involved and that really was the key when Mike made the decision to make a significant investment in Memphis Grizzly House at St. Jude, 
because St. Jude is, again, part of the heart and soul of the community. And that was one area that was sort of missing from Ronald McDonald House, Target House, and the incredible work that they do. And when we built uh, Memphis Grizzlies House and to see people like Jason Williams, who maybe didn't do so well with adults, but loved kids, him coming to Grizzlies House unannounced, no media, no camera crews, that's how you become a part of the community. And so that was key, what we did educationally, what we did, you know, you didn't have to create youth basketball programs in Memphis because basketball is part of Memphis. Um, but having local players, um, it, was, it was well thought out, again, because Mike listened to all those people who had become a part of the Memphis communities and not all the feedback was positive. Yeah. One other thing that I think is one of your greatest legacies with the franchise and is the MLK Day game. And that was something that, uh, you know, it, it, you just don't walk into David Stern's office and say, hey, we're going to play on MLK Day and we're going to play on national TV in the middle of the day. Yeah. And we're going to have this big celebration in, in Memphis, Tennessee uh, for Dr. King's birthday. Give us a sense of, of what was that process like and was that something that you thought of, Mike Heisley thought of, or the local leadership thought of? How did that all come together? Because it because well, to, to this day, Andy, it is one of the best days in Memphis, period, the end. Uh, I think, again, teamwork, we're all proud of it. And, you know, I go back to two points, and then I'll get back to MLK. But the voices before you of the Grizzlies, the great late Don Poyer and how he and Barb immediately became part of the community, only in the movies and in Memphis, right? right. That gets to our heart right now, as I said it. Um, and then uh, Sean Tui, right? You know, when I tell people about how I met Michael Lewis and this guy, Sean Tui, and like, yeah, I, I said, Sean, I don't think this is gonna work because you don't speak English. <laughs> <laughs> ultimately, you know, what a story that became in terms of the Tui family and what they mean to the community. Um, so in MLK, it's like, yeah, you're the Memphis Grizzlies. You'll be on TV in six years. Like, whoa, no, not good. You know, we're in the league. Uh, give us a break. Uh, and as, of course, as I said, Mike and David were not necessarily playing golf every other weekend someplace. I don't think David played golf, Mike did. But um, we started talking. We had a great relationship. Another name, Beverly Robertson, was a massive factor in making things work. And then Dan Conaway and his advertising agency, Memphis Roundtown, right? If you were to tell people, Brooklyn Nets, round town. And you're like, what are you talking about? Memphis Grizzlies, round town. They immediately got it. And so when we looked at what the NBA meant, I developed a friendship with Earl Lloyd, you know, one of the first, if not the first African-American players in the NBA who's from Tennessee and just having the massive impact of the Lorraine Motel and the MLK uh, museum and all that, how could you not 
move forward and we went to David um, and Mike pushed it and I and others um, in the community along with Beverly about, wow, I mean, this is, this is a focal point of the world. How could we not do this? And then when we created the scholarships and the youth games and created the legends and we could bring individuals in who'd live their life in the spirit of Dr. King and the civil rights movement and still battling today, um, that was an immediate light turned on in the league and it really started out, truth be told, how do we, little old Memphis Grizzlies, how do we get on the national tube? Because, you know, we were, yeah, who do you got? Um, and that's how we did it. Because I don't know how many games they're playing now, three or quadruple headers. Now everything sort of changed. But that's how it started. And then it's built over time. And this is what, year 19 or 18 through all that we've done. And I'm as proud of that as anything that I've ever done in sports. Cause again, it's so representative of what is right and correct and speaks to young people more than just basketball. You've been in the sports business for more than a couple of years. You've worked for more than a couple of franchises. What has been the biggest evolution in the business of sport as, as you have gone through your career? Well, what is the biggest evolution is what's missing today, Pete. Living, breathing individuals, the fans who are in venues in every sport. And I probably would have been one of the early lunkheads that would have done cardboard cutouts at fans, but a cardboard cutout is not two guys yelling at each other about yeah, I think Jock could be one of the greatest players in NBA history. Or have you seen James's move with the Warriors? And boy, could we get him at some time in the future? It's the fact that sports is storytelling and you do it for a living, right? You love to do it for a living. And now that storytelling is done in a virtual I think to a certain extent, a virtual vacuum without the fans. And no matter what the video walls look like, no matter what kind of technology, if you don't have them there to watch the, that evolution, people are looking for ways to bridge the gap. But to me, um, when sports starts to lose its ability to tell stories from a three-year-old to an 83-year-old, that's when we have problems. And you know me, Pete, well enough. I'm a technological troglodyte. I totally appreciate analytics and metrics. I do not demean it. But you know what? Sports is heart and soul and the ability to tell stories. And players that nobody knew who become all-stars and players who were drafted in the first round who you never hear of after year two. So the evolution is that the technology is better than ever. I just hope that the storytelling and the quality of the players, and I think this year has shown with the work that LeBron has done with so many others and Black Lives Matter, and the fact that the days where sports and politics and life don't mix, those days are long gone. 
now these players and organizations and owners and people that work in the front office, they need to be representatives of their community in good and bad and in different times to make that franchise as strong as it can be. Is it true that roster construction, I know you can't always get a roster that reflects your local market, but how helpful is it when you do have the pro athlete that quote unquote gets it, whether they're in Memphis or San Francisco or Milwaukee or wherever? Well, this is like you putting stuff on a tee for me, you know? I'm thinking, this is great. I'm thinking back to the press conference of Shane Battier and Pau Gasol, and I think Stromile, but um, Shane started talking uh, in the uh, press conference when he was presented along with Pau, and and somebody asked him a question about, you know, when your career is over, right? You've just been drafted. (laughs) Your career is over, uh, Shane what do you want to become? And he, and I think his answer was, well, I'd like to become an entrepreneurial philanthropist. I mean, that's exactly what he said. (laughs) And I don't know whether it was George, you know, Lapidus or Ron or somebody else went, what did that guy just say? Huh? An entrepreneurial philanthropist. And he went on and on was just talking about Duke and all that and being the son of a biracial family, right? Mom and dad. And at the end of it, and of course, Pau is, you know, one of my favorites, terrific, solid human being. And somebody, Shane was done and somebody pointed to Pau and said, well, well, Pau, what do you have to say? And he sort of smiled in that sheepish smile he had. He goes, I agree with Shane. (laughs) And didn't say another word. But when, when you can have a, local players, uh, that's great. When you can have players that totally get it, like uh, like Shane um, and, and, oh, and, you know, just think about Zach. I wasn't around, but everybody, well, Heisley's out of his mind, like, Zach, what are you, nuts? And how did that turn out, right? Well, well see, and that, that's really part of, part of why I asked the question, because I was with Zach in Portland where he didn't really fit with the market. New York and Los Angeles were problematic as well, but there was something about Memphis where it fit. And then with Tony Allen, it fit. And then of course, Marcus Salt fits because of the family affiliation. And, and those are the times where I think the community can really get behind the team, even beyond wins and losses. Oh, absolutely. I mean, how many people that might have moved to Memphis, you know, and talked to Mark and he goes like, hey, Mark, like, where did you play high school in Spain? Right. <laughs> you know, like, well, I didn't play high school in Spain. I played high school over there. Mm-hmm. Like, who did you play with? Uh, Johnny West. <laughs> that kind of stuff, you know, only in the movies and in Memphis could right. you make stuff up. And that is really important. Or when you became it. You know, people, when Jerry, you know, again, think about it, Jerry West, Jerry West, people, when Mike said, hey, Andy, you know, Jerry, I go, I know his logo, but I don't really know. Well, he goes, well, what do you think? Would he come here? That's when things were not going well uh, with Phil and the Lakers. And I think the Knicks were pursuing him, Atlanta and all that. And I go, 
eh, you know, give him a call. Boom. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's where he came because Jerry was really a small town kid, even though he spent what, 42 years with the Lakers and became literally the logo of a league and the coolest guy ever. Um, but that, that worked out. Um, and all the individuals, I mean, Tony Baroni, you could just go down the list. What I found most positive is even though we had people from all over the country, many of them absolutely understood Memphis or at least wanted to learn about Memphis and became part of the community as opposed to like, oh, I'll only be here for two years, see you later. Well, then you might as well leave now because it's too uh, integrated. And I say that in the most positive sense of community, you ain't selling something that's not real or you'll be thrown out. And big thanks to Andy Dolich uh, for giving me about a half hour of his time to talk about how the Grizzlies got to Memphis, about its philanthropy, how Jerry West ended up in Memphis. And uh, it's really, really a tremendous story. And for those of you who are not aware, uh, this season is marking the 20th season for the Grizzlies in Memphis. And uh, it's it's an intriguing story. And Andy is as good as anyone at chronicling it because he was there and he was in the midst of everything, along with uh, the late Michael Heisley, who had purchased the Grizzlies when they were in Vancouver and then relocated them to Memphis. So our thanks to Andy for that. Our thanks to you for listening. This is the Grizz Weekly Grind, a proud affiliate of the Basketball Podcast Network. Thanks so much for listening.